Welcome to the Horizon Search Podcast, where we dive deep into the minds of extraordinary professionals, uncovering the stories, inspiration, and wisdom that have shaped their careers. I'm your host, David Lovejoy, and I'm thrilled to embark on this journey with you. Today's guest is Greg Geronimus, who in many ways is the epitome of a traditional searcher. He did a partnered search with a school friend, successfully acquired a tour company, grew it over five years, remained on for just shy of a year for a smooth exit, and then formed a reputable private investment firm with the same partner. We look back on his journey as he shares some perspective and insights for those who would follow in his footsteps or apply his learnings in a new context. I'll now let Greg introduce himself in his own words. Excited to be here, David. And yeah, my name is Greg Geronimus. I run a firm with my business partner called Footbridge Partners. We invest in small to mid-sized businesses with uh, alongside search fund entrepreneurs. And I'm a native of New York, but uh, currently a resident in San Francisco and have an office in Sausalito, married with two kids and another one shortly on the way. So that's me. Great. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I was curious, was there any culture shock going from the East Coast to the West Coast? No, it really, it really suits me better, honestly. I love the pace, the outdoors, the sort of more relaxed way about things. I mean, people are still ambitious, still energetic, but I think I you know, know how to find a little bit more balance, which I like. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Happy to hear that. So if we could go back a little bit, what got you interested in entrepreneurship through acquisitions specifically? Sure. So I worked at Goldman Sachs right out of college in one of their private equity arms and learned a tremendous amount. But, you know, even at the age of 22, 23, I had somewhat allergic reaction to working for other people. And I realized how ridiculous that sounds in hindsight. At 22, 23, you should be just happy to have a job. But I just sort of knew very early on that I wanted to do something more entrepreneurial. I wanted to control my own destiny. And I didn't know exactly what that would look like, but I thought I'd use some time back at school. So I went to business school to explore. In all likelihood, I thought the the way you did something entrepreneurial was to start a business. And little did I know that I would come across the search fund model or the broader concept of entrepreneurship through acquisition. And once I learned about it, it was sort of like love at first sight. I thought it was the coolest thing I ever heard. And I thought it nice for me personally, in a sense that I'd be able to use my experience in investing in private equity to help jumpstart my path towards entrepreneurship and running a business. In many ways, the risk reward profile of buying a mature business that already had product market fit that already had revenue and and even more importantly, real cash flow, that resonated a lot more than the zero to one and the odds of success when going down the ETA path are just that much higher. It seems kind of like a middle of the road option or a Goldilocks option, depending on your perspective. Many people I've spoken with are attracted to the extra zeros in private equity. I'm curious, what made you focus on the small to medium business as, as opposed to the larger private equity firms, given your experience at Goldman Sachs? Yeah, I mean, it really was just a strong desire to do something on my own, to run a business, to bet on myself. Yeah. And I wouldn't say that was necessarily the, the most reasonable idea to have that sort of reaction or point of view at 23, 24. But I don't think entrepreneurship is ever confused with, with being reasonable. And I just wanted to do it. It certainly was not necessarily the best sort of probability weighted, like risk adjusted path, 
but I wanted to bet on myself and see if I could pull it off. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that. I have a off the cuff question here, but looking at your profile, I find many people like to go to different schools. So if they go to like undergrad in one school, they'll go to another school to mix it up. And there's certainly worse schools you could go to than Harvard. But I was curious, why could you talk about why you decided to go back to Harvard as opposed to, say, Oxford or a different business school like Stanford? Great question. I had a great experience undergrad. Incredibly grateful to have had the opportunity to spend four years in Cambridge. and. I had heard just wonderful things about the business school. I was also somewhat geographically constrained. So I was really only looking in the Northeast at the time in order to balance things with my then very serious girlfriend, became my fiance in the middle of business school and is now my wife. So just trying to juggle a few different considerations. That's about the best answer I think you could have given me. Thank you for that. I'd like to talk about smart tours. Like after you decided to go down this path, How did you come up with being involved in the tourism space? And what did that look like? If you had told me that we were going to buy a tour operator when we launched our search, I I would have told you you were crazy. Actually, I probably would have first asked, what is a tour operator? And then I would have told you you were crazy. But the idea of buying a B2C, inherently cyclical travel business, just... It honestly didn't occur to me and really didn't even compute when we first connected with the seller of smart tours. So as you can probably tell, we were not proactively looking for a tour operator. We sort of stumbled upon it. We met the accountant for the company through some local networking in the New York area where we were based. Uh And he insisted that we talk to his client, the founder and then CEO of Smart Tours. They said, you'll be really pleasantly surprised. It's a really great business. And I said, sure, why not? It can be hard enough to source interesting or promising opportunities. And to have somebody say, I've got a business owner that wants to meet with you, think it's a great business, and turns out had pretty reasonable valuation expectations. That's a gift that many searchers don't get. So made the very short trip. It was only a walk away from our office in Manhattan. I had coffee with the founder and then CEO of Smart Tours and went in with an open mind, still quite skeptical, but learned a lot of things that were surprisingly attractive. The accountant was right. There were a lot of really interesting fundamental business characteristics, as well as a lot of really interesting opportunities to grow and create value within the business. And then, you know, took it from there and and the rest was history. Right. I'd like to drill a little bit into that history. But before I do, I'd like to bookend kind of that experience with where you were then and where you are now. My understanding with aligning a searcher into a company or an industry is you're looking for alignment. You're looking for experience and knowledge that has going to have instant traction. And given that you didn't like know if I'm taking your word, what a tour operator was, or certainly didn't have experience in the tourism sector, how important is that to you now as you hire searchers that they have experience in the industry that they're looking to get involved with? So I think it's a huge selling point if the stars align and a searcher has highly relevant experience in the industry that they are acquiring a business in. But I don't think it's a prerequisite because as we experienced firsthand ourselves and have seen and worked with searchers over the years as investors. Searchers can get up the learning curve and make some real magic happen, even in industries that are fairly unfamiliar. Now, there are limitations to that. And there are certain industries that are just inherently too complex 
for somebody coming in with no knowledge to figure it out. And I don't want to diminish the complexity of the core operator business, but I don't think it's the world's most complicated type of business to run. I think that's fair. And it took a while to really learn the ropes and understand what we were doing, uh, let alone add value. I think it fell in that category of business businesses where, yeah, you can figure it out. You shouldn't expect to be sprinting from day one, but you can figure it out. To reinflate my ego a little bit, what are some things that a Harvard MBA struggled with getting involved with the tourism industry? What are some challenges you faced? What did we not struggle with? HR, building out the team, gaining the trust of the team. I mean, we were half the age of the average employee at Spark Tours at the time. Wow. Figuring out what we were doing on the marketing front, on the sales front, everything. We struggled with everything. I'm not exaggerating. It was a tremendous learning curve. Neither of us had any operating experience whatsoever, let alone travel or tour operating experience. So that's part of why it was such a fascinating and rewarding journey. But at the same time, it was also helpful to have bought the business that we did very well. We paid a very modest multiple of EBITDA. We had a very favorable deal structure and capital structure. And we were in a position where if it did take us a year or 18 months to figure out left from right, that we would still be more than okay. If we had paid through the nose for a business like this or any business, if we paid through the nose for any business and had this steep learning curve and had to grow right away and so on and so forth, then that would be a different story. But the fact that I think every searcher goes through this to just to a large extent, really just a steep learning curve is all the more reason to be disciplined at, you know, when you buy a business. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking from my own experience in the tourism space, I could think of like three points that like if you were to ask me, I think I could think of three highlights. So I think it's a fair question to ask you. Looking back on your time of Smart Tours, what are a few things that you're proud of to this day? You're coming in recent grads, half the age of most of the people that work there. But what's some of the differences that you were able to make that you're proud of to this day? Yeah, I would say a couple of things come to mind. One of the most satisfying experiences, even though it, it only lasted for a couple of years until there was a change in U.S. administrations, but getting in relatively early into, into Cuba and being part of, you know, we were not the only tour operator, but being on the early side and being able to get Americans into Cuba, experience that beautiful culture, create those really rich interactions between Cubans and Americans that had been impossible, at least on the cute to, to do so in Cuba for decades was really special. And then the personal level, just to be able to experience it myself a couple of times was awesome. I would say right behind that was 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 probably it was doing something similar with Egypt. Not that we were early in Egypt, but we were early to come back to Egypt after a handful of years of pretty tough times for them. So to be able to send a thousand, fifteen hundred travelers to Egypt in a you know in the first year that we restarted our trips when that country was really struggling following a very difficult stretch from a tourism perspective that was pretty awesome and and I'll never forget that experience and and being able to deliver that kind of impact more from a business standpoint I would say being able to take what was strictly a B2C business we would sell to individual 
couples and individual travelers and get them on group trips to destinations all over the world to really build up more of, I guess, what we consider to be a B2B2C model that didn't exist before we bought the business and selling into universities, selling into retirement communities, chambers of commerce, you know, start a new business line from scratch that became pretty sizable. It was a nice driver of growth, was pretty meaningful. And those are a couple of things that stick with me. I won't get into the crazy sort of middle of the night phone calls of we got to get your travelers out of X, Y, or Z destination. That I'll also never forget, but I don't know that I consider that to be a, a victory. That's impressive. Thank you for sharing that. And congratulations. I'm curious, how important was it for you then? And then I suppose now as well, but how important was it for you then to have mentors? Because I'm sure you had a lot of bright ideas. Did you test that against your, your advisors or your mentors? Or did they give you some ideas that you didn't have? What did that look like in shaping some of these strategies? Yeah. So we were very fortunate to be able to recruit a really talented wonderful industry veteran to our board of directors. Her name is Jennifer Tombaugh. She's the highest ranking non-family member at Tauk, a large, very well-established, more high-end tour operator. I think she's sort of the, the number two there. And a wealth of knowledge, as I said, a wonderful person. In many ways, it's just it's sort of entirely non-competitive because Tauk is sort of more luxury-oriented, smart tour is pretty value-oriented. So she was able to share sort of her experiences and guidance pretty freely since we were not directly competing. And I'd like to think that she was able to learn a little bit from being able to observe what we were doing at Smart Tours. But she was instrumental in getting up to speed on the industry and moving the ball forward once we got our feet underneath us. Yeah. Are you involved in any uh, leadership groups now or do you have a formal mentorship network or is it more informal at the stage that you're at now? I'd say it's more informal. I mean, I, I learned from a lot of the other search investors that we work with now and serving on boards, on a, a few different boards for companies that we've invested in and, and being able to listen to the experiences and wisdom that other board members share. I find myself learning a lot and really value that. Probably should do something a bit more formal. But yeah, there are a couple of people where I, I would say I more proactively reach out to just to bounce ideas off of, but a little more structure wouldn't hurt. I should put that on the list of things to, okay. to do. Yeah, it's funny. You know, I look up to what you've done, but I found in my own life too, like you learn stuff from absolutely everyone. You kind of mentor up, mentor down, mentor sideways. You're always, uh, the more plugged in you are, the more ideas you kind of think about. Moving ahead to Footbridge Partners, how did that come about? How did you decide the name? Because I know some people when they successfully exit, they go right back in and just do another traditional or retire or whatever the case may be. What led to your decision to start your own company and how did you arrive at the name? So Footbridge was the name of our search fund that we launched in 2012, right after graduating business school. We came up with that name because... I don't know how well you or, or anyone else listening knows Boston and Cambridge, but the Charles River basically splits Harvard's campus and the business school is on the Boston side, technically in Alston, and the sort of Harvard Square is on the Cambridge side. And when we were in business school, I lived right in business school housing and my business partner and friend, David Rosner, the other co-founder and partner of Footbridge lived on the Harvard Square side. So there was a week's footbridge separated us and 
went over the Charles River. So we used the name Footbridge for our search fund, and we revived it after we exited and used it again for what we've called or referred to as Footbridge 2, the second iteration. Why we decided to move more to the investing side as opposed to operating again, I would say I think our default was much like what you you know, insinuated, which which was to just do it again, operate another business, and hopefully have a similar or better result. One of the things that we did after we sold Smart Tours was that we just started investing personally, more on the side in search fund entrepreneurs and search fund deals. Found that we loved doing that. Absolutely and had a blast working closely with searchers. So much so that we said, hey, wouldn't this be great if we could do this all day, every day? And then we also sort of had an observation that we didn't think that there were enough search investors, traditional search investors out there that were really working closely, really deeply engaged with search fund entrepreneurs in the way that you know, we think is appropriate and what a lot of search searchers need. And so we were sort of also inspired to come out with a bit of a different model where we work with a smaller number of searchers, work very closely, just much more of an engaged sort of partnership-driven model, which is what we're employing now. That's a beautiful story. Thank you. Sometimes you see these names like Oakbridge or something like that, and you wonder, is it just like, or what is the Wolf of Wall Street one, like Oakmont or something like that? It's like, how much thought went into it? Is it just because it sounds nice? But that's actually really uh, poetic. And that's nice to see that you're still partners, you know, and you revamp that uh, upon exit to Footbridge too. Thank you. We're still having fun. That's great. So kind of got a two-part question. One, to take a step back, what advice would you give? And uh, perhaps you give this to your searches that you fund now. What would you do differently looking back when you were starting out to pursue a traditional fund? Are you saying from a during the fundraising process or during the searching process? Well, I was thinking like like just generally, is there something that, oh, I wish I had done that differently? But if you want to put them into different buckets, that's fine as well. Sure. I think during the fundraising process, you know, I would think about really interviewing your investors as much as they are interviewing you and really thinking about what you want and what you think you might need in, in an investor group and not being afraid to ask. You know, hard questions about how investors support searchers. And because this is a hard path and you want to make sure as much as possible that you have people that are in your corner and that are going to show up for you with more than just capital. I think during the sourcing phase, a couple thoughts. One, it is a good thing to be quick to kill an opportunity. It is incredibly helpful to say no to something. Important to keep an open mind. No harm in taking a first meeting. Glad we took that first meeting with Smart Tours, despite our being deeply skeptical. But I think a lot of searchers are waste a lot of time on opportunities that are pretty clear dead ends. Certainly clear to me as an investor, but also I think if a search, you know, so a searcher really asks themselves, "Is this the one that I'm going to be able to get across the finish line?" I think they would know the answer. So quick to kill. And then I firmly believe that you have to have healthy amount of volume at the top of the funnel in order to find the one that's right for you. There are different schools of thought. Some investors believe that, you know, highly targeted, highly customized is the way to go. I don't necessarily disagree that 
a degree of targeting and customization makes sense, but I don't think that's mutually exclusive with also doing some high volume outreach. And I think it's important to keep in mind that a lot of stars need to align for you to just go buy somebody's business. That's not a simple deal. Business needs to be right, big enough. Price needs to be right. Seller needs to trust you. You need to trust them. Investors need to be on board. A lot of things need to line up. So I think you just very simply need to have a lot of lines in the water. Yeah. Yeah. I'm starting to appreciate that. It's not as simple as going into a store and picking something off the shelf. So yeah, it sounds like you had a lot of stars aligned. And looking at Footbridge now, if your website is up to date, looks like you have 10 operators currently, and then one entrepreneur in residence. Is that correct? Yes. So I'll pull up the website as we're speaking. It should be up to date. Okay. The entrepreneur in residence, a guy named Alex Shattuck is yeah. it's the the free section the first searcher who said look I just really want to work with you guys and only you guys and what do you think about being the sole source of capital and we sort of thought about it and said sure why not it's pretty it's actually pretty consistent with our model anyway of working incredibly closely with searchers and in many respects like we interact with him and engage with him in the same sort of you know, intense and collaborative way that we do with others. And he wanted to streamline things. And so he asked, can we sort of, can you call me an entrepreneur res- residence? We said, sure, why not? But he's effectively a searcher just with a different tap table. Okay. And then the other entrepreneurs that are listed on our website are a mix of active searchers and active operators. So people I running, see. running companies. So one thing that interests me about your approach now, I'm starting to see a pattern, which I like. You said you blended this kind of B2B and B2C model, which is a kind of first of its time and smart tours. And then here it's almost like Footbridge is an accelerator and also a traditional search fund model as well. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I don't expect us to do a lot of this sole source of capital entrepreneur and residence model. I think we're okay. Oh, We've done one. We're it's going really well. We should close it. We're okay. likely to close well, on a business. Congratulations, Alex. <laughs> yeah, we're going to close on a business. We're open to it. It's just not something that I think we'll necessarily lead with because I think okay. a lot of searchers, for some reasons I understand, and others that I don't as much, you know, prefer a diversified group of investors and cap table. But I would say putting Alex aside because he's a bit of a an exception, and he is exceptional as a person, searcher, leader, but putting him aside for a second, you know, I would say our model is sort of a hybrid between accelerator and traditional search investor in the sense that I think we draw a lot of inspiration from accelerators and how closely that we work with searchers, the support that we provide, the engagement that we provide. But we're also, for the most part, we think it's important that searchers have the ability to come up with their own firm name, their own, wear their own uniform, have their own office, choose their own tech stack and so on and so forth. So where I think some accelerators maybe sort of go a bit too far is sort of mandating a bit too many things for the searchers that they work with. The good news is that they're, you know, different models work for different searchers and we sort of exist. We draw inspiration from from a few different sources. So I would say we're somewhat of a, a hybrid model. Okay. That's interesting. Is there anything else that separates Footbridge from other companies that invest in searchers in your mind? 
I'd say that, you know, the key is the intensity of collaboration and the real commitment that we make and follow through on with searchers to be there with them every step of the way. Okay. And I wouldn't understate that. And in order to make that happen, we work with a much smaller number of searchers. You know, I think a lot of search investors will have 30, 40, 50 searchers at a time, 40, 50, 60, 70 companies at a time. We back two to four searchers per year, looking to end up with nine or 10 companies. Fundamentally different approach. And it's our sort of focus and commitment to partnership that I certainly believe is unmatched. And yeah, there's some other things on the margin, but but really that's the key. And are you regionally focused, industry agnostic? We are industry agnostic. We are regionally focused insofar as everything we've done to date is in the US. Okay. We're also open to investing in Canada beyond that, you know, not at this time, but I'm sure that could evolve as time progresses. Okay. And what would you like to see? I guess another two-parter. One is what would you like to see change in this space? And looking ahead a little bit, what do you see on the horizon that you're excited about or interested about? Well, I'd like to see more diversity in search. What's been particularly stubborn has been gender diversity. If you look, you know, there this I guess this only applies to traditional search, but if you look at the Stanford study that comes out every other year, it gives a profile of searchers who's going down this path. And it's been gender diversity, the number of female searchers has been really stubborn at sub 10%, maybe right around 10%, and would really like to see that change with time. And I think there's a little bit of movement, some reasons for optimism, but it's been stubborn for too long. And so that's sort of the main area that I'd like to see change in the ecosystem. You know, in terms of you know what's on the horizon, I think they're you know, going to continue to be new and innovative models and interpretations of entrepreneurship through acquisition. And 10 years ago, it was traditional search. And then you had a few cowboys who went down the self-funded path. Now there's traditional search, a lot more people doing self-funded. There's the accelerator model. There's the old co model. There's sort of more of a independent sponsor twist. There's a lot of variations of entrepreneurship through acquisition. I think that's wonderful. That helps bring more people into the space. And I think you're going to continue to see you know, innovation there. At the same time, I do wonder how you know, this sort of meteoric rise of in terms of the number of searchers. I mean, it's just it seems to accelerate year in, year out. I wonder what the ceiling is. If there is a ceiling, it is as romantic as it sounds to go buy a business from a retiring founder and carry on his or her legacy. It's incredibly hard, maybe not quite as hard as starting a business from scratch. But I think, you know, sometimes people underestimate how challenging it can be. And so, you know, I don't know if that will sort of create a natural ceiling and where that ceiling will be, but it's certainly not for everybody. Last question for me, if you didn't go down the route of entrepreneurship through acquisition at all, what would you be doing today? I probably would have taken a swing at starting a company coming out of business school based on probability that would have failed. So what I would have done next, I don't think I would have ended up back in sort of conventional 
private equity or, or finance, I probably would have tried to find my way into some operating role and probably be in sort of an operator somewhere. I think that's try to start out failed operating. That's likely the hypothetical if I had not done search. Okay. Thank you for that. Is there anywhere that you want to point us to? Should we check out footbridgepartners.com or anything else that you're excited to promote? Oh, goodness. Yeah. Check out our website. Check out our companies. We've partnered with some incredible people to buy some really, really awesome businesses across healthcare. And we have a software business that sells to tour operators called SoftTrip. We have a med spa business called the Skin Center if people want to you know, look and feel younger. And, and they live in Pittsburgh, Columbus, or Cleveland. Check out the Skin Center. So now we've got some really proud of the businesses that we've invested in, the entrepreneurs that we're that we're partnering with, and really believe in, in this model of really close partnership and collaboration and, and bringing that to the search space. Okay. Well, Greg, thank you for speaking with us today. Best of luck in the future. Thank you. Appreciate your having me. Thank you for listening to the Rise and Search podcast. Our next guest is Colin McWinney, a startup guru and innovation expert. With a career spanning over 20 years, Colin has been pivotal in generating millions of dollars in new sales revenues. He's the founder of Sales Experts and Canada Startup, organizations dedicated to strategic business growth, and has been instrumental in nurturing the entrepreneurial sector through practical services and training programs. A revenue growth expert, his sales primer system has revolutionized the way business approach their sales and marketing functions, and his work with Canada Startup has been key in transforming startups from idea to profitable execution. For anyone in the early stages of entrepreneurship, you won't want to miss this one. Until then, eyes on the horizon.